The first week of Advent, we lit the candle of hope. The second week of Advent, we lit the candle of peace. Today, this third week of Advent, we light the candle of joy. Joy sometimes comes to us in ways we cannot understand and cannot describe. Like shepherds announcing, like angels announcing to shepherds the unexpected, incredibly good news of God in breaking into the human condition. This announcement generating a newfound sense of profound joy. And there are times when you and I can open the doors of our lives and our hearts and our minds and facilitate, assist God in ushering into our communion and our lives the light of God's joy. Let's explore this day how the story of John and the potential of God's joy merge in this passage. The candle of joy burning. Let's start with a reminder of the conditions primarily offered us in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. This represents a key part of our Christmas story. Does anybody know what I have photoed here? This is what usually is presented in our American context as a little wooden cradle with hay. In fact, a manger looked like this. It was often carved out of a solid piece of stone. It was cold and hard. It was filled with straw. And on top of the straw, there in our story was placed a blanket and then a baby wrapped in another blanket or swaddling clothes. But this was the setting, the place. It was a manger because it comes from the French manger, which means to eat. It was a place where animals ate their hay and their straw. This is what it looked like. Cold, hard, simple, and pretty nasty. Our setting is the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist is our topic for the scripture today. He was proclaiming the coming of someone these people did not know but needed to hear about. And it was in this area, this is a a photo I had the privilege of taking, in the wilderness of Judea, the place where John was preaching. In his time, and in the time of Jesus, there were a lot of divisions, in fact, divisiveness within the Jewish community. We know lots of different cliques and groups and people who felt very strongly about very important issues then, just like now. In those days, we have 
four simplistic divisions that we can talk about, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. We examined more carefully, and each of these had subgroups, and there were lots of other divisions within those subgroups even. But we can look at these four as kind of the primary areas. The Sadducees were wealthy folks. They were people who had sort of made deals with the occupying forces, that is the Romans. They had a lot of land, a lot of power, and generally speaking, at least in the time of Jesus, they also had control of the temple. They oversaw interactions in the temple as well as within the government. The Pharisees were more of the people. And by the way, the Sadducees had very little faith in their lives. They were strictly trying to just figure out how do you make deals and get things done and stay in power, which is why we call them so sad, you see. It's a good way to remember. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were really more of the people. They were trying to find common ground within the law of Israel. The 613 laws, the Pharisees were trying to help the people be as a community maintaining loyalty to the law of Israel and connecting them with God's covenant in their lives and and this purity and desire for righteousness within the community. They wanted everyone to equally have access to God, which is why we can call them Pharisees. They want to be fair and, and allow everyone in on the same page, unlike the sad UCs who wanted it all for themselves and everyone else was below them. The Essenes are never mentioned in the Bible, but we know they exist, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We also know the zealots exist. There are places in the New Testament where the word zealot is used. It may have been a little bit of a different context, but the idea of somebody who was zealot, there were subcategories of the zealots, and they were very much in favor of pushing out the occupying authorities. The Pharisees didn't talk a whole lot about that. Sadducees made deals with the occupying authorities. The Essenes said, we think everything is bad and we're going to just dissociate ourselves from the occupying authorities. We're going to go out in the wilderness and be on our own. The Zealots said, at least the subdivisions, one of them called the Sakairi, after the weapon that they used as acts of terror. The Zealots said, we're not going to make deals. We're not going to just exist and try to minister to the people. We're not going to flee out into the wilderness. We're going to fight. Now, if this sounds familiar, sociologists can tell us that in lands where there is active oppression, in places where there is an occupying power, it is common for there to be four divisions of people who make deals with the occupying power, those who just decide to exist within the occupying power and try to make things work, those who dissociate yourself, themselves from society and the occupying power, and those who say, we will not stand for this and fight. If this sounds like what's happening in Israel and Palestine today, that's because it's understandable. 
This is the way it breaks down. This is what happens. Now, the question for our lesson today is, where does John the Baptist fit in this flow of sociological networks? And the answer is, he was in the wilderness, but he was preaching to the people. He fits squarely right in the middle between Pharisees and Essenes. And in fact, if you visit the Middle East today, if you go to Israel and you go into what's called the Occupied West Bank and you go to the Dead Sea, which you can see from this slide in the background, along the Dead Sea, there's a community called Qumran. Archaeologists have been excavating this for years and years. And the more they excavate, the more interesting it is, fascinating the way the Essene community of Qumran existed and in fact probably thrived for about 200 years for these very reasons. The Essenes had made the decision, we no longer want to participate in the temple complex and the broader religious life of the people. We want to be faithful to God and we want to move away and be faithful in the wilderness. So John the Baptist, there are some streams of thought that say John the Baptist really was perhaps at some point part of the Essene community. In fact, when you go to Qumran today and you go into the visitor center and you see the film that illustrates and recreates some of what would have been a part of the Qumran community, part of that film actually has this fascinating piece in the way they work it where they show this guy showing up. And clearly it's an allusion to John the Baptist. He's a part of another movement. He comes, he spends a little time in the Qumran community, and then he quietly leaves. Was that John the Baptist? Is that the way he worked? The evidence in the scripture seems to indicate he cared very much about the people, but he also cared very little about living with the people. The people actually came to him. It's a fascinating work where we realize right on the Dead Sea, by the way, this is a, a, one, of the, one of my groups where we're doing some water aerobics in the Dead Sea, which is right there at the Qumran community. It's a perfect opportunity to take a little swim and get cooled off and enjoy the waters of the Dead Sea. Also, right there is this famous shot. Anybody know what this is? This happens to be Cave 4 of the Dead Sea, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947. It's one of the most famous photographs. I actually took this one. I also took this one. Uh, people haven't used my photographs, but other photographs like this demonstrating these places, these caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found that changed the perspective of archaeology and biblical history or biblical understanding from these ancient scrolls that were found in this cave and many others right around this area. Qumran, the Essene community, John the Baptist, in the wilderness of Judea, we know from last week's lesson, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, we know what John was preaching. He was preaching hard words. He was calling people to task. He was saying, you people are nothing. God can make children of Abraham out of rocks. You think you're special. You're not special. You need to repent and turn from your wicked ways, which made everybody very uncomfortable. But to their credit, they said, okay, we hear you. Now, what do we do? And John's response was three things you need to share. You need to be honest, and you need to quit bullying. 
Now think about how simple that is. We said last week these are things we learned in kindergarten, or we were supposed to have learned in kindergarten, and people we know, we also know that didn't learn it in kindergarten because of all the messy stuff going on in our world today where we're not sharing, we're not being honest, and we're bullying one another. Beth and I stumbled upon this rock. Speaking of bullying, there's, it's not just don't bully. How about you treat somebody in a way that makes everybody feel like a somebody? It's not just don't bully. Treat people, we said last week, with dignity. But even more, offer people a blessing. What a difference that makes in their lives and in our lives and in our broader community. This is the basis of what John was preaching. Now let's get to our point. And by the way, we've got plenty of time. Uh, Christmas on Claremont is not until 6 o'clock tonight. So this is going to take a while. Uh, So we're just starting the sermon right now. Knowing who you are. How do we get this lesson of John the Baptist merged with the idea of joy? Knowing who you are. It starts with this fascinating interaction that John the Baptist has with these key leaders of the the Jewish community. He's in the wilderness, he's preaching, and these people are aware the preaching that he's got has power. He's changing lives. People are, are, are doing things as a result of what they're hearing. They're becoming better. They're sharing and being honest and returning where they're no longer bullying, but instead treating people with dignity. So the question arises in the Gospel of John, in our story today, folks, confront John. This makes me think a little bit, some of you are familiar, maybe some of you remember Monty Python. Anybody remember Monty Python? The Holy Grail, Life of Brian, Monty Python, and, and, and a lot of this is coming from New Testament stuff where I can just hear a dialogue happening with John the Baptist and the people. So, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Are you then maybe Elijah? No, I'm not not Elijah. A prophet? Are you a prophet? No, I'm not a prophet. Who are you? Clearly, you all didn't see Monty Python, but this is, <laughs> this is my feeble attempt at, at, at merging at least this with a sense of humor. Anyway, uh, John is clearly aware of something that's vital in our lives. John knows something about himself. And the first key element of moving in the direction of a liberating idea of joy is knowing who we, can you guess it, are not. Knowing who you are, the first step in learning who we are is learning who we are not. Now, I'm going to ask the most famous person in this sanctuary right now, Daniel Solberg, to step back to the organ because I really feel like singing something. No, no, I'm not. But I want to illustrate how this works in our lives. In music, there's this thing called a suspended four chord. For me, it's a perfect illustration of how many of us live our lives in a suspended four state. This is what a suspended chord 
suspended four chord sounds like. What does it sound like? Discordant. Something's wrong. What's missing? Hear the difference? Let's do it again. This is a suspended four chord. And now here's the resolution. You hear the difference? A suspended four chord is discordant. It's missing the harmony that our ears expect and need. But the, res- the resolution of that suspended four chord creates a thing of beauty, a triad, where the harmonies allow our, our hearts and our souls to feel like, yes. Let's do it one more time, Daniel. Unresolved. Resolved. Okay, I'm going to get cool here. That was actually a suspended four chord within a suspended two chord into a resolved major chord. Doesn't that sound cool? I feel so good now. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well done. Okay, Daniel Silver, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) So now Christmas on Claremont commercial, you've got to come and hear the resolution of what we just heard on the organ. The reality is, music is a good illustration. Many of us live our lives in a suspended four. We're trying to be what other people think we should be. We are trying to fit into the box that other folks have put us in. It is liberating, and in fact, Many of you have testified to the sense of joy to come to the conclusion, I don't have to be that anymore. I am not that. That's not who I am. How tempting it would have been for John to have said, well, yeah, in fact, I am the Messiah. You know, uh, I'm not exactly Elijah, but I can be if you'd like me to be. I- I'm not a prophet, but, well, there, you know, there could be some money involved with that. I, I, might, I might go there. It is liberating, it is resolving, it is beautiful to be able to say, that's not me. I am not that. I don't need to be that. There's something better God has in store for me. And that's okay to say, I know who I'm not. It's the first step, the first crucial step in knowing who we are and beginning to move in that direction of facilitating that that highway of the Lord that allows God to come into our lives and generate a sense of joy and possibility and hope and peace. There's also the need in knowing who we are to recognize this clear distinction. Occupation versus vocation. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Occupation versus vocation. Most of us know what an occupation is. An occupation is what you do, generally to make a living, which is interesting the way we word that. I make my living. In other words, I stay alive by doing this thing that I may or may not like, that I spend the majority of my week doing to make money so that I can pay my bills so that I can feed my family and stay alive. It's what occupies our time, and our energy, your occupation. 
versus a vocation. I always think of Don Weeks when I think of a vocation. Don Weeks was a deacon at Signal Mountain Baptist Church. He was an extreme introvert, very quiet and also beautiful, loving and caring. He wasn't comfortable getting up in front of crowds. He didn't want to talk on Wednesday nights at Bible study. What he clearly felt called to do was help people quietly behind closed doors. He was an engineer with Westinghouse. He also was good with his hands. And my dad, as pastor of Signal Mountain Baptist Church, would often find out about folks who were struggling, often senior adults who had a broken down washing machine or a dishwasher that no longer worked or a plumbing problem. And my dad would quietly let Don Weeks know. Signal Mountain in those days, nobody locked their doors. And so often he would sneak in people's houses and fix whatever was wrong and then sneak out again. Every now and then people would catch him. And that's how we found out this is what Don Weeks was doing, quietly helping people. This is called a vocation. It's called what you can't not do. An occupation is what you do. That's how you have your time, fortunately or unfortunately, occupied. A vocation is what you can't not do. What a beautiful thing is when we discover, first of all, who we're not, and secondly, what we love, what we're good at, what God called us to do. In fact, the, the word that we use in English, vocation, comes from the Latin word vocare, which literally means calling. It's the verb to call. God calls us to do and to be something that sometimes in our lives we're having that suspended forecord where we're not quite where we need to be because we're occupied with doing other stuff that's keeping us too busy when in our hearts there's something calling us to better, deeper things. Another step in the gift of receiving God's joy and serving as a conduit for God's joy and hope and peace and forgiveness. So knowing who you are is partly knowing who you're not. It's also partly finding your vocation and discovering what it is that you can't not do. And then finally, it's the perfect illustration of what John is living out. He's telling people what he's not and who he's not. He's preaching this hard message but important message to people. But most importantly, what John is doing is pointing people to Jesus. What better illustration is there for how to live our lives? To discover the gift of God's joy in our lives by knowing who we're not, discovering what we can't not do, and just saying, you know what? This isn't about me. It's about Jesus. And let's discover this journey together of faith and life and hope and peace and joy with Jesus. Let's do it together as we light and participate in the candle of joy in learning to know who we are in the gift of God. Amen.